Welcome to another episode of Ed's Up, sponsored by the Southern Early Childhood Association. Ed's Up is a podcast all about children and those that care for them. Hosted by Dr. Melody Musgrove and Dr. Kathy Grace with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. So it is our great pleasure to have today on Ed's Up, Janet Lansbury. And Janet is a very talented author, parent educator, a former actress and model. She has published a number of books and has podcasts, a lot of great resources that we are so excited to be able to share with you today. So welcome to Ed's Up, Janet. Thank you so much, Melody. I'm honored to be asked to join you. Well, thank you. You know, I actually kind of discovered you through your podcast and was just so taken with just the great, reasonable and compassionate way you deal with young children and their families. Your books, Elevating Child Care, No Bad Kids, both of which I have, just are uh, such user-friendly resources. And so we're just so excited to be able to share some of those today. So why don't you, first of all, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, I am, I think of myself primarily as a, as a mom. And even though my children are adults now, my youngest is 18, I, that has been my I don't know. I feel like that's my life's work in a way. And so the career that I have now, the work that I do, it came organically, actually, after I had a baby and realized I knew nothing and was very overwhelmed and having panic attacks. And I mean, looking back, I, I realized I'm the kind of person that needs some clarity, needs some structure I like to think of myself as I just go wing things, but I actually don't. And something this important that was so important to me, I've been looking forward to having children my whole life. It got me out of many a dark moment. The idea that, well, there's something I really want to do someday. So when I got to that point where I had a baby and she was wonderful and everything went great, but I thought I was magically going to be carried away into motherland and know exactly what to do. And it would all be this blissful cloud. And it wasn't, it was confusing. My baby cried a lot. She cried very with this intense edge in her tone that was the sign, an early sign of a very strong will. A healthy, strong will that she has today still, but you wouldn't really know it. So I was just trying to keep her happy and do everything I was supposed to do with no sleep and all the usual things that parents have. But I happened on to, so randomly, happened to discover the work of Magda Gerber. And everybody says this, but it changed my life completely and actually gave me a life in terms of a calling and a real focus on what mattered, not just with children, but with relationships in general, with human relationships and developing myself. And it just gave me so many fascinating, resonating things. And uh, so I just organically got into wanting to learn everything about this approach Immediately, it gave me clarity in terms of where my energy needed to go during the day with my daughter and what I needed to let go of spending energy on. Things like just try to get her to stop crying no matter what. <laughs> Those kind of things that we 
get hooked into that being our job. And what happens is our panicky approach to getting our child to stop crying actually creates more stress for them and more crying. So right there, it's not helping us. It's actually wasting our energy and causing us to need to use more energy. So things like that just straightened a lot of things out for me. And then working with Magda, she was so inspiring. And uh, eventually I had never thought I'm going to teach this, but after I did all the training with Magda, that became the next possibility of how to keep working with this approach. And I found that I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed working with parents. I loved being in the parent-child classrooms that we have with the babies and getting to enjoy all these other babies, observing them, watching them grow, because parents would come each week, sometimes for two years, with their same child, and I would get to see all the development that happened, and you just, you learn so much from observing. That's one of the key practices this approach recommends, sensitive observation, and it really teaches you everything you need to know about young children. Well, what a fateful discovery that was whenever you found the work of Magda Gerber. And I'm sure there are so many parents, including myself, who identify with what you were feeling at that time as a new parent of thinking that we just somehow are supposed to intuitively know what to do with these new little creatures. And most of us were kind of conditioned by the work of our own parents who themselves often readily admit that they didn't know what they were doing either. So just what a refreshing find to hear the way you approach, which is very different as we're going to discover, I think, through this podcast is it's very different from what many of us have been taught about child rearing and about working with young children. So why don't you talk about kind of the principles that underlie respectful parenting and what are kind of the key things that you want parents to learn or to understand right off the bat? Well, the first one for me that was very stunning was this idea that your child is not a blank slate. And now there are a lot of studies that validate this, of course, but your child comes into the world as an actual person with their own thoughts and ideas and likes and dislikes and passions. And they are obviously a very innocent person without set ideas about things. And that's wonderful. That's why they learned so much in these early years. But this idea that I had that we need to be entertaining and stimulating and putting things into them like they're these blank slates that we need to fill up, that that's our job, is false. And just like what I was saying about the being panicky around children's feelings, trying to, you know, do something to make them stop, the constant stimulation that I was doing where I was playing music for my baby. I was like sitting her up in a seat on a table and I was playing, pulling strings that, of animals that made music. And I was like hanging them from the, from the light fixture in the dining room and just constant. I felt like I need to put constant in. What that does is it overstimulates a baby who's so open and absorbing everything in their environment. And then 
now we're going to have a baby that's fussier. There's more crying. They're, they're unable to do everything they need to do as well. Eat, sleep, um, relax, digestion, because they are dealing with this stimulation. So it was a huge eye opener to me to discover. And the way I discovered it was that I went to a, I heard about this approach. I took my baby who was three months at the time that I was totally overwhelmed with and didn't know what I was doing and going crazy with. I took her to a class, a Rye class. Rye is the nonprofit organization that Magda Gerber founded in 1978, it's called Resources for Infant Educators, and it's known as RIE, RIE. But anyway, I took her to a class, and the teacher said, just lie her down on this blanket on the floor, and you sit near her and just observe. And, of course, I'd been constantly stimulating my baby, so this was right there was, okay, sure, I'll put her there. I'll be over here. I'll watch. And the class was two hours at that time. Now the classes are mostly 90 minutes. But for two hours, my baby, who, like I said, cried a lot and I was stimulating her a lot, she was content, didn't make a sound. She was awake for two hours that time. And just peacefully looking to the side, looking around, and what I saw was a person with thoughts of her own that had her own thing going on there. She didn't need me to make something happen for her. Quite the opposite. I think that it was, she did such a long period in that class for me, I think, because she knew she needed to make a point with me to cut it out, get out of her face, like let her let her think, let her explore the world on her terms, which was looking towards a window where there was light coming down. She couldn't see through the window. She was on the floor, but she could see there was light that direction, feeling the air. Who knew what she was doing or what she was thinking, but she was perfectly content. So that was my striking light bulb moment, understanding that aspect. So what happens also when we get stuck stimulating and playing for children or constantly entertaining them is that they get accustomed to that. And that's what they think life is supposed to be with us, that they're more passive and we are doing the action for them a lot of the time. And they're just kind of responding and taking it in. And then when we want our child to play and entertain themselves a little bit while we do something else, that is more difficult for them. They could still do it if we are committed to allowing that transition to happen, but it's not as easy and natural for them as if they've been doing it from birth, which is what we recommend, that we give babies time in between the things that we need to do with them, feed them, diaper them, give them a bath, get them to a comfortable place to get a rest. Between the, all of those things, let them be. Let them, quote, play, which can be just as simple as I'm choosing to look this way or I'm choosing to look that way. Place them in a position where they have a lot of freedom to move and do as much as possible, as much as they can. And that position is on the back where they can move their arms, they can move their legs, 
practice getting their fingers to move and their hands, which they spend a lot of time doing in the early months. They can turn their heads every direction. They don't have this strain on their neck. This is a position that gives them a feeling of freedom and ability and allows them to self-entertain. So that's a weird thing that we recommend that I don't hear a lot of other people recommending. It changes everything. Another thing that I've heard you say often, Janet, that I found so compelling is that you know we, I think unintentionally, very young, teach children that the things that they're feeling are not okay. Like it's not okay to be angry or it's not okay to be upset. And then as they get older, then they have trouble. They're waiting for someone to fix those feelings, to make everything better, and they're unable to cope on their own. Can you talk about that, about how just letting, I've heard you say, just let the feelings be. You be there, but we don't have to fix everything when something goes wrong. Yes. So this has been a very impactful element of this approach for me. It was very different from how I was raised, so it really stood out for me. It starts when, I mean, we're all, it's so well-intentioned, everything we're doing as parents, we're not, yes. yeah, we're not saying stop crying or you know, when it's a baby, but these messages start early. And again, we can always make changes at any time in the way that we handle feelings, but we, it will help us to know the effect of the messages that we give and that we're so powerful all the time with our children that we're always giving them messages about things. So, and we don't have to be perfect either at all. So let's look at a baby is uh, crying. An infant is crying. And we, so we know we just fed this infant and maybe we, burped the baby too. So we don't think it's, it's a, a tummy ailment. Um, but even if it was, that's not something that maybe we can actively help with and maybe giving them freedom to lie on their back and move their legs around is the best possible thing we could do to help them move that gas bubble around. But let's say that the obvious things that we're, we think reasons they might be crying needs that we might be able to meet physical needs. Uh, we, None of them are coming to mind, and this doesn't seem like any of those things. So what do we do? And the normal thing to do, I think what most of us were taught to do or are taught to do, is you put something in their mouth. You put a pacifier in, or you uh, maybe you swing them around, or you you even standing there like you're hopping up and down, kind of bouncing up and down, bouncing up and down, like just move the baby, like get them to stop. And all of these things, obviously well-intentioned, and it's not like we're harming a child there in any way, but we're giving a message that this isn't a state of being that is okay for you, that we don't feel comfortable with you expressing this. And uh, we, you shouldn't feel comfortable expressing it and it's got to go away. We want it to change. So this very normal thing that we do is a message that can start early as, Oh, I'm not, it's not okay for me to feel not that my parents going to get mad at me, but they're clearly uncomfortable and I'm looking to my parent to 
set the tone for every experience I'm having. How is it? What's the, you know, what's the weather like today? Parent, is this okay? Um, and so now uh, as a child, we're feeling like, oh, something really bad is happening here. So not only do we feel the discomfort, the sadness or the frustration, uh, whatever it is, the disappointment, but we also have this sense that this is a scary place that I, my parent needs to rescue me from. It's not okay for me to feel these normal feelings in life that we all have, that we're going to have a million times throughout our lives. And so that's not a resilient building message. That is a message that makes it harder and harder to get comfortable with life's discomforts of which there are many. Sure. And then even, you know, as they get older then you know, especially in the South, but in other places too, it's like, there's this thing about, okay, children must respect grownups. And if they get angry and they express that anger, it's like, you know, we fuss at them about not, you're, you're not supposed to act that way. You're not supposed to express anger when they're going to, I mean, we all are going to get angry. We're all going to express disappointment. It's okay to cry. Uh, I think that brings us to another point that I think is so important that we somehow have developed the, and I think it's part of American culture that when children misbehave, that they're doing it willfully, that they are doing it to, you know, to, because they're trying to do out of spite or for whatever ill intent they're doing it out of, when in fact they can't. That part of their brain that controls their emotions, that controls what they do, they, they're not advanced enough to be able to control that. And so seeing it, seeing the child's behavior differently is, uh, I think, a really important part of what you're promoting with Rye, that you know, if you see it as they can't, they need to be, they need their parent or their caregiver to rescue them from themselves. They know they're doing something that they shouldn't be doing, but they can't stop. So would you talk a little bit more about that? Because that is such a fundamental difference that, from what many of us have been taught. Yeah, so... There is a lot of brain science around this now, which I'm exceedingly grateful for. Yes. Because this is something else that can be helped by the practice of sensitive observation, not even just observing a child who is angry or upset, but observing children behaving naturally shows us that they do see the world differently and that they are very innocent and open and they're not these adults that we might see when a child is angry at us and then suddenly we we see this is as if an adult was doing this instead of realizing that this is a very new innocent open immature human being still a full human being but at a very uh easily dysregulated time of life. And anyway, now there's all the science showing that what you said is true. Children actually can't control their behavior. When they are acting in those ways, it is usually a sign in ways that annoy us and bother us. It is almost always because they have gone beyond their own control. These 
behaviors that seem so volitional to us are actually not in our child's control at all. And seeing that is so important. The way we perceive, like you said, is the key. Because if I see somebody that can't control herself doing this mean stuff that's so bratty, you know, what's the matter with this child? And I'm so offended, I'm going to react a certain way. I won't be able to help myself from reacting a certain way. But if I'm seeing, oh gosh, poor baby, she's like flailing around and uh, she's lost it. Yikes. I'm going to feel totally differently about it and I'm going to react differently about it. So that is the practice. The practice is in seeing. And this, the brain science that's out there now about self-regulation can help us to understand and see more clearly. But it's, it's all about what we see. Yes. And, and let, let's talk about some very practical examples that I've, you know, I've just been, as you know, you know, I have adult children, but also now have a four-year-old. So and when we go into a store and, you know, he wants a toy and he's gotten toys there before, but I've, you know, made the, and this is not, let's be clear. This is not about giving in to children's every whim. It's actually quite the opposite. It's about, I've heard you say, be that firm leader that children need. They need to know that we are, that we've got their backs and that we can handle whatever comes their way. So, you know, we go into a store and say, no, you know, and so he starts, you know, complaining, no, but I want a toy. No, I know. And so validating those feelings that it's okay for you to want the toy. It's, I'm fine with you wanting a toy. You're just, you can't have a toy. I'm going to be right here with you while you feel that way. And I'm not going to say, oh, you, well, you just had a toy. So you're such a spoiled brat because you want to No, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm the adult here. I've got you covered. I care for you. I'm going to be with you while you go through those feelings. You know, I think sometimes we think, oh, I can just reason with my child and we can't reason with them at the age of two and three and four when they become dysregulated. And we say, you know, instead of saying, you know, why don't you be grateful? As if the child is going to look at us and say, oh, you're right. I just got a toy. I should really be happy about that. It's just not going to happen. And I don't know why we think those are going to happen. So any other practical examples like about hitting or other things that you could share? Um, yes. So as you were saying, that example, just to finish there, because it uh, applies to a lot of different situations, that I'm already thinking the way, again, this goes back to the way that we perceive. So, and our expectations, our expectations are so important because those are going to either, those can make us very disappointed and surprised and if, if they're not reasonable. So the expectation that my child, and maybe it's afternoon, anytime beyond 10 or 11 in the morning is kind of iffy for it to take a child out somewhere um, that's very stimulating. So first I'm going to understand that my child may be tired and any store is very stimulating for a young child in the early years. It's a lot of stimulation. They are much, they do much better in a quieter environment with less stimulation than where then they're, it's easier for them to control themselves. But when there's a lot of stimulation, so I'm already in a risky situation in the toy store or wherever, whatever the store is where the toy is. And so 
if I, if I know that, but I still need to make this choice anyway to go there, then I'm going to be ready and I'm going to be expecting my child to do dysregulated things like getting stuck asking for a toy when they know they already have that toy at home or there's a million or whatever that, and even if we got them that now they're going to want another thing very likely, you know, it's, it's, it's not about a toy for that child. It's about, Oh, I just want, and I'm not comfortable and, and uh, help. <laughs> it's a help. So I might be able to, in advance be already thinking of an exit strategy about how we're going to get out of there so we don't make a big scene um, because we it's not fun for us to to make a big scene and, and be there while our child is having that that feeling we still might have to if we have a I mean I've left uh, cartloads of groceries before in the store because I realized uh-oh oops <laughs> yes. yikes we got to get out of here. Um, this is not going to work. And there's, like you said, there's no talking to a child that's going to help because they are not in a reasonable state of mind. Sometimes children are very, very reasonable. Young children, one-year-olds can be so together and reasonable that it blows your mind, but it can never be counted on with them because they <laughs> it very, very easily. So let's say a child is uh, hitting or something that, so I am going to be surprised if my child has never done this before. And I may feel myself getting, you know, having that flash of anger even at my child. But ideally, I'm going to find my way back to the perception that, again, the practice of observ observation helps us to have, where I... Um, almost and eventually curious as to, whoa, where is that coming from? What's going on here? I'm going to stop my child from doing that. I'm blocking their hand. If I'm, if I've picked them up, I'm going to put them down. Oh, I can't let you hit me. But in my mind, I'm like, whoa, what's, I wonder what's making him lose control or her saying, oh, we don't hit. No, the child knows that they're not supposed to hit. They know that hitting is not acceptable. So again, trying to tell them or scold them or make them feel bad about their behavior is just not going to help. Right. And we have to think about why am I doing this? So what's my intention in like trying to, I get, I hear that a lot from, from parents. Well, how can I tell them that, that it's bad, that they shouldn't do it? And, and I ask them, what do you want out of that? Well, if they think it's bad, they're going to stop. Well, no, like you said, Melody, they already know that that it's not welcome behavior. Uh, the very first time as an infant, they just swung their hand and tried that. They saw that it was not welcome behavior. So they learned that the very first time. Children learn very, very readily, especially when it comes to us, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. our reactions. Janet, can I, can I just want to just interrupt and ask you a question along the same line. I apologize. This is so interesting. But in in terms of reflection and observation, and you're talking about of the, the baby, but what re with regard to observing yourself or having a reflection from your own adult self, particularly when you've got societal things that are pushing on you that, cause you not to be able to have that insight because you're in a hurry, you're working, 
the whole, uh, I guess, rat race that some of us find ourselves in because of the fact that we have a lot of outside stress pushing on us. And the other thing that I, I thought would have some bearing on this is that because we're such a competitive country, so it seems that we want our babies to be the best baby, to be the smartest baby, to be the prettiest baby, or to be the most most athletic baby or whatever. And so without meaning to, in terms of this accelerated, as you were talking about stimulation, so I just wonder how you how you would respond to some of the pressures that from the outside that are weighing in on parents. Well, the tortoise and the hare is a good, is a good story that comes to mind. But I would help parents to understand that the way to get what they want looks different than what they might think. That the way to actually get a child who behaves well, let's say that whose behavior makes you proud, who has good manners, who has good character, who other adults compliment. If that's your goal, uh, which I think it, to be honest, it's one of all of our goals or most of our goals to get that requires actually joining our child as early as possible in a relationship that provides safety, that provides guidance, that always stays on their side, that helps them to feel good about or accepting of all sides of themselves, even the side that wants to hit, that we can accept that side while we stop the behavior and clearly let our child know that behavior is not okay. But yeah, I see you you feel like hitting, you want to hit. So that child doesn't internalize a lot of shame. I think we can even look into ourselves maybe and see that when we're behaving in ways that don't make us proud, it is behavior that comes out of our feelings of shame, our feelings of hurt, our feelings of sadness. Um, and many of them stem from these messages that we got early on from our parents, not even to blame our parents, but that's just what happens when children are shamed into good behavior or uh, scared into good behavior with harsh punishments. They might get somebody that sort of knows how to behave well on the outside, but inside there's a lot of discomfort and shame and lack of acceptance of self that's never going to bring out the best in somebody. That's not going to make for a most successful person, certainly not a happy person, somebody that thrives in relationships with other people, which is really what the world is about. Is I'm not just talking about a romantic relationship, but being able to uh, be in community with people. We're crippling our children in so many ways by trying to put those straight jackets on them to like early to get them into behavior. We, the cost of that is great. And as parents, it's our job because our children definitely can't be the ones to do this, to see the big picture, to try to remember, of course, we're going to give our child those 50 toys in the toy shop to get them out once in a while. Like, yes, we're all going to go the easy route, the quicker route sometimes. But if that's our MO, then 
we're going to actually make it impossible to get the things that we want our child to have. We're going to make it so much harder on them. You know, so if we can put those blinders on in the early years when we're hearing a lot of blah, 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 do it this way, do it that way. And, oh, man, your kid. I always listen to that, actually. Like if if a parent tells me that their in-laws or people are saying, you don't have control of your child. And you sometimes there's something in that that the parent might be trying to do parenting in a way that's less authoritarian than what, what they experienced, but they're going too far the other direction. That's often a sign that now I'm just not doing anything. I'm actually frozen because I don't know what to do. So that's a common stage in between where we're able to set those limits with confidence, but from a place of, again, being on our child's side. So I always look at that when people, when I hear a when there's a lot of comments about a certain thing, there's usually something to that, but the answer still isn't smack them, you know, put them in the, you know, punish them, yell at them more, do those things. It's, it's never that. How could it be? Because when we do that, we're, we're thwarting the greatest tool that we have, which is it's the relationship we have with our child that is what creates the best behavior and best character and all the things that, that we want. It's them trusting us, them knowing, like Melody said, we've got your back and we're never going to go. We're never going to not be on your side. Yeah. We're going to stop you from doing those crazy things. That's our job. But, and we're going to, when I want to go to the bathroom alone, I'm going (laughs) and you can yell at me. It's really okay. But I'm still doing this. We're having those boundaries, but, we're not blaming our child for the normal things that they do when they lose control. Uh, these are just the point. I've just realized how long we've been talking, Janet. What a great <laughs> conversation. You have so many awesome resources available on your website, your podcast, Unruffled. I don't know if that's your child's picture on the uh, Unruffled, but that is such an adorable photograph on your podcast. <laughs> Thank you. That's the, um, this woman, a wonderful woman, Sarah Prince. She's, uh, does all my book covers and she actually makes the little posters that you put on Instagram and those places. And, and she's, yeah. Anyway, those are her children, the two oh, children. Just so sweet. So tell our listeners where they can get your resources, your website. You just, you have so many resources that are available, your books. Tell people how to find you. Thank you. Um, I have a website, JanetLansbury.com, and through that you can probably find out where to get all the other things, but my podcast is available on every platform, every podcast platform, iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, and my books are only available through Amazon because they're actually self-published through Amazon. And Audible, uh, my audiobooks do quite well, I think, because people got used to me podcasting. So they're like, okay, I, <laughs> I can, I can snooze and do some, <laughs> listen to this. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, they like that. And that's basically it for now. I'm actually working on another book as we speak. So that I've been. Oh, great to hear. Great to hear. I look forward to it. Thank you. That's kind of like the whole, trying to do the whole ball of wax. <laughs> one book. Um, which I don't feel like I've really done yet. So I'm working on that, but it's taking a long time. (laughs) 
Yes, yes, you're very busy. So we're so we, we're so appreciative of you giving up your time today and a lot to think about, particularly during these times that are sort of unusual with conditions that we've never anticipated and how that's going to affect children and family relationships uh, over the next months and years. So this is very timely for us to have this time to talk with you. So we do appreciate your your wisdom. Yes, and thank you for being so generous with your time. And thanks for being with us on Ed's Up today. Bye-bye. And now for today's poem. It is a fun poem by Jack Prelutsky, one of our contemporary poets, um, entitled, Be Glad Your Nose Is On Your Face. Be glad your nose is on your face, not pasted on some other place. For if it were where it is not, you might dislike your nose a lot. Imagine if your precious nose were sandwiched in between your toes. That clearly would not be a treat, for you'd be forced to smell your feet. Your nose would be a source of dread were it attached atop your head. It soon would drive you to despair, forever tickled by your hair. Within your ear, your nose would be an absolute catastrophe. For when you were obliged to sneeze, your brain would rattle from the breeze. Your nose instead, through thick and thin, remains between your eyes and chin, not pasted on some other place. Be glad your nose is on your face. That is Be Glad Your Nose is on Your Face by Jack Prolutsky, and it's downloaded from poets.org, P-O-E-T-S, poets.org. Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. We're always interested in stories about children and those who care for them. If you'd like to share your story, email us at edsup at olemiss.edu. Until next time, bye-bye. Ed's Up is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity. 